All right. How's that, Jer? Is that good? Okay. Getting better at this, being in the right spot in front of the camera. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chinese Church in Christ South Valley. Um, I wanted to start by saying a happy Mother's Day, um, not only to the mothers in this room, but especially to them. Um, I think Mother's Day is normally a very joyous occasion, though I also know there are ways that for some people it can be a difficult day for various reasons. Um, if someone has lost their mother or if um, they haven't seen them for a while. Um, I got to go see my grandma last weekend, or last weekend for the first time since the pandemic started, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Um, but just wanted to say Happy Mother's Day um, today. And in thinking about this, you know, we teach about the Bible. And I've realized many times we say the Bible is the circumstances that are going on in the passage are speaking into a male-dominated society in the ancient Near East at this time. And we try to kind of culturally see what can we learn from what God is saying. And we might also think, well, we've certainly made a lot of progress in terms of how like women are viewed in society today. And though um, knowing all that, I know there are still many ways where it is difficult for women in this world. And for that reason, I just wanted to say to all of the women in our church, we love you. To all the moms the and the future moms in this room, we love you and we value that you are here. And we know that there are a lot of challenges that still exist for many people in our world. And so I wanted to start by saying, Happy Mother's Day. Um, I think this is important, especially in a week where we saw a lot of in the news about uh, just the Roe v. Wade things and how we view abortion in our world. Um, let me be perfectly clear. Our church is apolitical, and we don't feel that it's our role to take a side in things. We're a church, and we believe our role is to preach the gospel and to disciple people. And so that being said, I do think there are a lot of tough questions that maybe we had to wrestle with as we heard about things in the news. And I think that deep down in our thoughtful considerations about an issue that is challenging for many people, I do think that all of us are hoping that we would come to difficult questions and topics from a place where caring for people is the ultimate goal. I think a lot of people, that would be our, our baseline. And so um, from that place, I'm really, uh, I'm kind of amazed that uh, God led us to this place in our sermon series, the second week in our series. Um, we planned this before. We had no idea what was going to happen in the news. Um, but thinking about what I've been reading this week, it just made me think, um, trying to think about God's perspective. Does God care for the unborn? And I think we could say from God's word, we would have to say absolutely. And I think we also see that there are uh, mothers or future mothers who are in seemingly impossible situations, and we would know that God has a heart for them, too. We're actually going to see that in one of our passages. And so on a day where we remember the mother figures in our lives, um, I'm thankful that we have a God who loves all of us and wants to deeply care for all of us, even when the difficult conversations and topics come up. And so today, like I said, Daniel and I planned this as we prayed about what to preach on next. We planned the series. Uh, we did the outlining of it before Easter. And we had no idea that this would be a week where these questions would be in the news when today's topic would be on the one word, adoption. And that's an, a really important word in the Bible. 
And I want to show us that that's a really important word for each one of us today as we continue on in our series about God puts the lonely in homes from Psalm 68. Um, last week, uh, Daniel introduced us to the theme verse of this new series that we'll be in for the next month or so, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I, as I was saying, I got to visit my grandma down in LA this past week. I hadn't seen her since the start of the pandemic. She is the only, um, the only one of my grandparents who is still living, and so it was really good to see her. Um, and I know that the pandemic has been quite lonely for her. Now, my dad's sister, my aunt, lives down the street from her, um, but I lived with her for all four and a half years of my seminary time, and it was just really good to see her. Um, she feeds me so much. It's like I don't. I feel like I'm still full from spending a couple of days from uh, with her. Um, but uh, one thing I loved about visiting her this weekend was, oh my gosh, it was so quiet in her house. And for me, that was welcome because I feel like my my life is filled with noise and lots of um, busy things. But for her, it's actually very challenging because um, I think I get all of my extroversion from her. I get my inability to stay in the house from her. But as someone who's in her late 80s and um, has to be careful given that the pandemic's going on, it's been very challenging. And oftentimes I know she feels very lonely. And that's a good connection to what we've been talking about, what Daniel introduced us to in our new series. And Daniel shared all kinds of uh, just studies about loneliness that we've seen in our world. And I think all of us, if we deeply thought about it, we would say, yeah, that sounds about right, until he said, all of these were from before the pandemic. And it's only been made worse, I think, by a lot of the challenges we've seen in having to stay home. And honestly, um, Man, this would have worked so well like, like five years ago, but it made me think of the Justin Bieber song, Lonely, right? And um, like, does anyone still know who Justin Bieber is in here? Like, okay, I see a few nods, and it's mainly from people who are over a certain age, but anyway. Um, like, and I think this is, when I, heard, when I first heard that song on the radio several years back, I thought, man, what a like, kind of dichotomy of what we would expect from someone who has all the money in the world, all the prestige in the world, super popular, and yet he's basically saying through the lyrics of the song, no one understands me, no one understands what I'm going through. And I just found that to be really profound in listening to the song many years ago. And so um, what we are asking in this series is if the words of this psalm that, we, uh, that Daniel introduced us to, Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, if those words are true, how does God put the lonely in homes? And how to, or in some translations might say families. And there's going to be multiple ways that we're going to answer this question over the coming weeks. And, um, and so, uh, but today we're going to focus on this one word that we see in multiple parts of the Bible, both conceptually and also literally. And that's the word adoption. Um, at the most basic level, I think we all understand what the word adoption means. Um, uh, it might make us think of a child with no parents, um, no family. Um, a synonym for like someone who's being adopted would be the word orphan, which also shows up in the Bible. Um, and then the process of adoption is someone who has no family being chosen to then be in a family. 
And um, if you think about the life of an orphan, um, it's someone who I'm sure is just really struggling with the concept of loneliness. We've all struggled with our loneliness in various ways during the pandemic, um, but I think for an orphan, there would be very real and tangible ways that they would be experiencing this. And I think there is a before and after of the process of adoption that is unmistakable for someone who becomes adopted. Um, I have been fortunate to be around, I think, really cool stories of adoption um, in different parts of my life. And so um, I'm only going to share three of them. Hopefully this doesn't take too long. Um, but uh, the first one was when I was in youth group, uh, my favorite musician was an artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman. Um, most of you probably have no idea who I'm talking about because uh, he was very popular in the, uh, he started producing music in the 80s. He's got a little bit of a, a country kind of Nashville-like sound to him, which like, you know, that's normally not my jam, but for his songs, it's like, it's incredible. And what I used to do is I used to uh, buy his CDs, his albums, like, I don't know if people know what CDs are anymore. This is the dating of this is just going from bad to worse. Um, but um, in the CD cases, there would be, instead of just one cover, there would be a whole booklet of all the song lyrics. And you could read all the lyrics to all of his songs. And uh, in describing the songs, there would also be several Bible verses, because all of the songs were based off of Bible verses that kind of contributed to that song being written. Um, with one of our former youth counselors, uh, a guy named Nam, who Greg will remember very well, a very passionate uh, Korean guy who um, lived in this area. Um, when he went down to LA, when I was also in LA for college, he took me to a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert. And so all three of these adoption stories are from people I've met. Yes, I've met Stephen Curtis Chapman. I've shook his hand and had a brief conversation with him, so I feel like that counts, even though the other ones are way more personal. Um, but in this concert, he shared a song that he wrote called When Love Takes You In. And it was really powerful because what he got to tell us the story of was um, he, you know, he's, uh, he's born in Kentucky, lived in Tennessee, as blonde-haired and blue-eyed as you can get, you know, kind of country, bluegrass. Um, but then when he realized how many orphans there were around the world, he felt that God put it on his heart to adopt a little girl from China. And he wrote a song about that called When Love Takes You In. And one of the key lines in the song is, when love takes you in, everything changes. And for the daughter that he adopted, I can imagine how different her life was when she was an orphan in China, and then versus after she had been adopted into a new family. And we're going to really focus on that um, throughout in a couple different passages as we go on. Um, tragically, what happened was uh, actually um, his son, uh, in a tragic accident, when, when this girl was uh, around five years old, um, he actually, actually didn't see her coming out of the house when he was driving in, and he tragically hit her with the car, and she passed away at a really young age. There's been books written about it. They've gone on shows to share their experience and um, try to comfort others who have dealt with the loss of a child at a very young age. And it also led them to adopt two other girls um, from China as well. And so right now, they have three uh, children of their own, and they have two adopted daughters from China. Um, when I went to this concert, there were several other people from our church there that day. 
And uh, two of them were Jean Fong. She was the wife of one of our previous pastors, Peter Fong. And she was there with her oldest son, Nick. And they were so moved by the story of adoption that they went home and started to talk about it. Now, it's been a while since they've been here because they've gone on to uh, just serve in other places, but uh, many of you will remember Emma Fong, who is their youngest daughter, who was, a, she was adopted also from China as a result of Nick and Jean being at this concert and hearing about this from Stephen Curtis Chapman. And um, sometimes Emma's on the Zoom, which is cool. She's not here this morning, or maybe she was and she logged off, I didn't check when I started talking. But anyway, it's like when I think about uh, when I think about her story and where she came from and getting to know her and seeing her grow up, it's been such a powerful example to me of God's love that moved in their hearts as a family. Though they were a family of six, they wanted to adopt this little girl from China. And because of that, her life would change as she's going to college and playing college volleyball and um, just uh, growing up, um, her life is very different now um, based on the fact that uh, the Fong family would want to adopt her. The last one I have a photo of that we can put up here. Um, and this is the Kindleberger family. Um, let's see, there it is. Brandon was a, or is a youth pastor that we met in Mexico. And some of you older youth group members or college students will remember him um, because we met him in Mexico. And his wife, Anna, is Filipina. And this is their adopted son, Didier, um, from a, uh, the, and there's a whole story that I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but it was really fun for us to meet Brandon in Mexico. At the time he was married, he hadn't um, adopted his son yet. And then he came back as a speaker. And in 2017, we actually had him speak at our youth retreat. And he brought DDA with him, brought his whole, and his wife. And they all came. And I'll say more about that later on. But God had put it on Brandon's heart where even though um, they were recently married, he said God had given him a vision where around their family table, they had children of different ethnicities that were a part of their family. And I'll share more about kind of what Brandon has shared with us before in the past. But you see just how, like, how much God called him to want to uh, just go through with the process of adoption to welcome in this new member of their family. And so I'm really thankful that I've been around families who have adopted children quite a bit. Because I think when we understand what adoption is, that there's a before and after, really what it shows us is the before and after of what it means to know our Heavenly Father. And if we are struggling with loneliness the way many of us are in our world, Understanding the process of adoption and how, though we might not know anyone who's adopted, all of our friends might be just from the same like natural born family. All of us, if we have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, have been adopted into His family. And that's how we can know that God is with us even in our deepest moments of loneliness. So this morning, I want to look at three passages from the Bible that show us that Psalm 68, 5 and 6, that Daniel talked about last week, that God puts the lonely in homes, that this is real. And the three ways we're going to look at it are in this way. First, we're going to see, as, as Daniel mentioned briefly last week in the psalm, um, that God is the defender of widows. And we're going to see this from one Old, Old Testament passage in particular. 
And then we're going to see how Jesus is the comforter of the disciples and how that relates with the concept of adoption. And finally, we're going to see how we are chosen as the children of God. So first, uh, what does it mean that God is the defender of widows in the Bible? There are so many passages about this in the Old Testament, which if you think about it, if I'm sure we've explained it in various ways before, but in, the, in, in this time, if you were a widow, a widow is a woman whose husband passed away. Um, at this time in society, the husband was the provider for the family. And so if your husband passed away, there would be a very um, big question of how you would find money, how you would be provided for, what your future would be like. And we're going to see kind of a very extreme example of that in one passage that we're going to look at in particular. But it is all over the Old Testament. And so this is, um, this is important for us to understand the context of the Bible, because a lot of times people will see the Bible uh, and the way it's written, an argument will be that it's from a male-centric perspective. And I think culturally, there are ways where that might be true. But when you see all the different stories of women in the Old Testament and how much God cares for them, you will see that God's heart is for everyone, as it is still for us all today. And so um, in thinking about this, I wanted to briefly read through the story of Hagar and Ishmael from the book of Genesis. And so um, if you know the story of Abraham, uh, I'll try to go quickly so it doesn't take forever, but um, the story of Abraham is this. Uh, he left his home. He followed the calling of God to go and start his, or hopefully to start a family in a new location. And God said, look at the stars in the sky, and that's how many descendants you will have. Now, the problem for this was Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they had been trying to have children for many years unsuccessfully, and it took all of the faith that Abraham could have to believe we're way past the age of being able to have natural-born children. How could it be that God's promise of all of these descendants is actually going to come true? And so in trying to figure this out, Abraham and Sarah come up with their own plan where Sarah says, well, maybe having one of my servants be the surrogate mother um, of our child is the way that God is going to answer this, this prayer. And so um, Abraham uh, has a son with Hagar. And then um, as the story goes, his name is Ishmael. Later on, Sarah, even though she's way beyond the years of childbearing, actually gets pregnant and they have a son, Isaac. Now, in this time where the lineage of the family line and Abraham being the head of their family and their tribe, which son do you think is the one that actually like, gets the line of succession? It would be the one that Sarah gave birth to because she is Abraham's actual wife. Now, that brings upon a problem. Now, he has two sons, both of them who, insert from a certain viewpoint, could have a claim to being the firstborn. And it becomes clear to Hagar that Abraham is going to choose the son of his natural-born wife, which in a lot of ways makes sense, and she starts to fear for her safety, and she starts to fear for the safety of her son. Knowing that this is an unavoidable conflict, Abraham sees this as well, and so he helps Hagar figure out ways that they can kind of go on a journey to leave the family and start their own life. It's just the natural consequence of this is why, like, it shows that their plan, uh, their original plan, uh, just brought upon all kinds of complications in, the, in the, the state of the family. And so this is kind of the backdrop to what we see um, in the verses we're about to read in Genesis chapter 21. And so let's read Genesis 21, verses 14 to 16. 
It says, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Now let's think about Hagar's situation. She's forced to leave the family that she's been with the entire time, where there was protection, food, resources, and now she's on her own with her son in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert, trying to find some place to go to. Abraham gives her a skin of water, but the water runs out. And at this point, she is desperate. And that's why she puts Ishmael under the bush in the shade, so hopefully so he's okay, as he's just really struggling with having no water. And that's why she begins to sob, because she's thinking, there's no way we're physically going to survive this. Let's keep reading in verse 17. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. In a very desperate moment, Hagar, think about the situation. She's not the wife of the head of the tribe, but she has a son with him. And it's brought about enough complications where she has to leave the family and be on her own, which would be incredibly unsafe for her at this time um, for all kinds of reasons. And now they've run out of water, dying of thirst. And she says this prayer and God answers and provides for her. For someone with an incredibly complicated life situation, she sees how God meets her needs and responds to her. So the before is that she's, before she prays this prayer, she's panicked, she's worried that her son won't survive, and she prays this prayer, and God answers. And this shows us how God sees her in her struggle and wants to provide for her. And even though all of the elements of this world are against her, physically, economically, from the long term, and socially, from, every, from the entire experience, God is with her and listens to her and provides for the safety of her son in this moment. This is one of many, many examples of how we see God care for widows throughout the Bible. It happens many times. We, for the sake of time, we don't have the time to look at all of them, but I wanted to look at this one in particular so that we could see this is a way where someone who is outcast, like it's, you know, having to leave their family is the opposite of adoption. Someone with like no real hope to look forward to, not even for, for survival at points in our story, how God hears her prayer and meets her needs. And that shows how, uh, how much God loves those, uh, the widows that we see throughout the Old Testament. You see this in multiple passages at different points. And if you look up some of the other women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you will see their own stories. That's something you can look up on your own time. But the point of this is to show that God hears the cry of this woman and her son who have been outcast from their family, and he answers, and he provides for them. And hopefully this shows us that in our moments of crisis, this was a crisis for Hagar and Ishmael, things may seem impossible 
And yet God hears our prayers and wants to show us that he's with us. Now, that doesn't mean that he always answers our prayers with yes, but he shows us time and time again that his presence is with us and that he loves us and that he won't leave us. So that's the first way we kind of see this concept of God being with those who are in lonely circumstances. It must have been incredibly lonely for Hagar and for Ishmael. And yet I'm sure the, um, just the presence of God being with them in providing this water um, to help them survive as they are on their journey helps them see how much God loves them and is with them. Now, secondly, we want to see how Jesus is going to comfort his disciples. And we might say, well, what does this have to do with the idea of adoption or the idea of being orphans? And we see this in John chapter 14. And we're going to look at one verse in just a moment. But if you know the context of John 14, John has the biggest view into the last week of Jesus's life. In the other gospel accounts, there's a shorter section, but in the book of John, starting in verse 12, there's 21 chapters, verse 12 starts with Jesus's last week on earth. So almost half the book is dedicated to Jesus's last week on earth, and several chapters, starting in verse 13, going through verse uh, chapter 17, is what's called the upper room discourse, where Jesus and his disciples are having this long conversation, knowing that Jesus only has a couple days left on earth. Now, for the disciples who had been following him, what you see throughout the, throughout the Gospels is you see the disciples with a sincere desire to follow Jesus and to be his disciples, but they have not, they're still learning what it means to be a disciple. And the reason we can say this is you see that when, after this conversation ends, even though Jesus encourages them with all of these things, it's still rolling around in their heads, they're still trying to grasp it, and it will come to fruition for them after Jesus dies and rises again on the third day. And that's why I think the encouragement that Jesus gives his disciples, knowing that he's been leading them and discipling them for several, for, for some time, um, the words that he tells them to help prepare them for what is coming helps them know that though he is leaving the earth physically, he will be with them. And he says this in John chapter 14, verse 8. This is what he says. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, and I will come to you. Now, for the disciples knowing that Jesus is about to lose his life, he's about to die on the cross, and this being just several days before that happens, um, they must have also been confused, asking questions like, what are we going to do? Is this the end for all of this? Like, we've been following Jesus and been a part of his ministry, but if he's going to die, like, what does that mean for us? And I think that's why this encouragement that Jesus gives them is so important. He's trying to show them, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Now, what does he mean by this? They may not fully understand what he means at this moment as he's speaking to them, but another part of this, what is called the upper room discourse, is it is a way where Jesus is promising the disciples the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now for us, we have heard of the Holy Spirit before. We might sing about it in songs. Um, this is why, uh, as Daniel mentioned last week, um, over the course of this whole series to see how God puts the lonely in homes and meets us in our lonely moments, we want to see how we are brought into a relationship with the living and triune God, meaning God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll go into that more as we, as we go. For the disciples hearing this, they, had no, they, they probably were struggling to understand what he meant by this, but there is a promise that he will be with them. 
a promise that they needed in this very confusing moment for them. And so Jesus uses the word orphans. Why? He's trying to show them, you won't be, what, is an, what is an orphan? We've talked about it in the context of adoption. He's saying, you will not be out on your own. I will be with you. You may not fully understand the way I'm going to be with you or what the Holy Spirit is going to be all about. They will in the book of Acts as we read. But he makes this promise to show them that though he is leaving this earth physically, they can expect that his presence will be with them and that they won't be alone. And so the before and after for the disciples, this is a very confusing time for them. They've spent a lot of time thoughtfully learning Jesus' teachings, seeing him perform miracles, and now the fact knowing that his life is in danger, it probably makes them wonder, what is in store for our future? Like, how are things going to progress? They probably had no idea what it was going to look like after Jesus died on the cross. For us, we live in a very uncertain future in a lot of ways right now also. And so we see how when Jesus promises the disciples that he'll be with them, it gives them guidance and encouragement for what they will face. We don't know what the future holds. Being a part of the church has been safe to say a little strange over the last couple years as we've gone in person on Zoom, worried about case numbers, wearing masks, all of these things. There are so many things that have really uprooted what we might describe as our normal life. And as a result of that, many of us feel the lonely effects of it because of how weird and different our world is. And we don't know the future, but if Jesus encouraged his disciples in this way, that he promised that he would be with them, I believe we can take encouragement from that promise for us as well. We don't know what the future takes, uh, well, well, where the future will take us, but if we know that God has promised us that he will be with us, not knowing what the future holds is less important than knowing that God will be with us through whatever may come. And so if Jesus, if this is a section where Jesus is promising that the Holy Spirit will be with the disciples, they don't know what he means at this moment, but if you read through the book of Acts, you see how powerfully the disciples get to experience the presence of God and how the church begins. And it's a way where you see that God is faithful to answering his prayer through the presence of the Holy Spirit with them. And this is why we will talk about the Trinity, what it means for us to experience the love of God the Father the relationship we have with Jesus, the Son of God, and how we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you guys have ever known, uh, noticed this, um, but at the end of service, like um, at least when I do it, Daniel might have his own methods or script or whatever, but when I do the closing prayer at the end of the service, it's very similar every week. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it always mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because we believe in the importance of the Trinity, right? Um, when I hear Uncle Rupert do it in English, it's even more simple because he's trying to limit the amount of English words. I'm sure it's a lot lo longer when he does it in Chinese. But the important part of it is to say we are acknowledging the relationship that we have with God, not just God the Father, not, with, not just with Jesus, but how the Holy Spirit is also a part of our lives, the triune God. And that is the encouragement that we can have as his believers, knowing that he will be with us to meet us in our lonely moments. Now we might ask, but how? What does that look like for us? Or how can we trust that this is real? And I want to look at one last passage 
uh, this morning um, from the book of Romans chapter 8 that shows us that we are chosen as the children of God. And it shows us what this looks like for us and how we can trust this can actually be real for us. We've looked through several passages where we needed to do some context, and so uh, just so we're not pulling these verses out of nowhere, we need to know what's going on in the book of Romans. Um, Daniel has long thought about doing a long Bible study on Romans that uh, with people who are interested. It hasn't happened yet, but if you, I'm sure if you go bug him about it, he would be happy to read through the book of Romans with you. Um, and he's nodding his head yes. So, like For those of you who can't see on camera, he's nodding, so if you want to go ask him. Um, the book of Romans is such an important part of us understanding what the Christian life is all about. I think a short way to describe it is saying it is a third person or an abstract view of what happens when we believe in God, how this forgives us, how this helps us experience the forgiveness of sins, how to process the ways that we still struggle with sin, but can look forward to the ways that God is growing us and changing us and refining us. It's earlier in the book of Romans where we see what I call the second most famous verse in the Bible, Romans 3.23. We all know John 3.16. We've been over that in earlier sermons um, in this year, and we've talked about that being the most famous verse in the Bible. And I think the the only way I'm... I'm uh, kind of making this the second most famous one is if you go to like football games or sports games, it's the one you see on the signs, like the second most. Um, but it's Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I was writing a verse to take on a sign to a sports game, I would probably pick a different one, but that's just me. But um, but it the reason why this verse is so important is it does show the brokenness of our world, how we are all affected by sin. But the book of Romans, the good news in it, when you get to chapter 8, uh, which we're going to read some verses from, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the amazing love of God and the peace with God that we can experience. This is all, in a nutshell, what we see in the first uh, eight and a half, or seven and a half chapters leading up to uh, some of the verses that we want to read in the book of Romans. But it's showing us who we are when we believe in Jesus Christ. And two verses that I find deeply encouraging are right in the middle of chapter 8, and we're going to read from verses 14 and 15. And it says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. And you see in verse 15, the phrase, adoption to sonship. And I want to unpack what that means um, by describing what I've been able to witness from my friend Brandon, the one who adopted DDA um, from Africa, right? And so... Um, when it, the last phrase that we see there, it says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Um, for us as children, we all have the way we refer to our earthly fathers, right? Um, we might say dad, we might say daddy, we might say baba, we might, you know, that's my attempt to speak Chinese for the morning. There's just all kinds of different ways that we might have this. Uh, it's, it's more than just a general term, but it's an intimate connection that we have with our earthly father. And so I was able to witness this when I got to see Brandon bring DDA with him when he spoke to us at that retreat. And at that retreat, he shared with us the process of adoption. 
Brandon was a youth pastor in Idaho, Boise, Idaho. And when God put this calling upon his heart to, um, to adopt, this, when the opportunity came to adopt DDA from a country in Africa, I'm not sure which one it was. I don't remember now at this point, um, but that's beside the point because the power of the relationship that you got to see from the process of adoption and then witnessing them being together in person really helped me see what it means to be adopted to sonship. And so Brandon, as a youth pastor, um, what he told his church was the opportunity to adopt a, a, a young boy in Africa has come up. And he told his church, I'm sorry, I'm going to Africa. They have not given me a timetable on how long this is going to take. But it was really amazing the way he described it. The reason why he said, I'm sorry, like I can't give you a timetable of how long I'm going to be gone, he said, I have to go pick up my son. Had never met him before. But he realized, as soon as he had this opportunity, he said the, paper, the opportunity to go through the papers and to make this official is real. This is my son. I'm going to go pick him up. And he shared with us, I don't remember all the details. Some of you may remember when he shared it with it, uh, shared about it in the retreat, but he, he said there were multiple hurdles that came up where it seemed like once they got there, they weren't sure if the process was gonna be official or how long it would take. And he kept having to call his church and say, sorry, I know I have responsibilities back home, but I'm staying here until I get my son. I have to leave here with my son. And that's such a beautiful picture of what it means to be adopted into a new family. And we will talk at great length next week about the role of the father in adoption. That's next Sunday's sermon. Um, or just the father's love that we get to experience from God, our heavenly father. But for a moment, I can't imagine what it, or just to think about what it must be like for DDA to have no, like, like just no security in his life no family around him, and then to have this one, this one couple who would stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks and wait for the official process to go through it, even though it sounded like it was very difficult to say, you are now a part of my family. How amazing must it have felt for DDA to see, I am now an adopted son of Brandon and Anna. And what an amazing feeling that must have been. And I imagine it was the same for all three of Stephen Curtis Chapman's girls adopted from China. I imagine that is something that Emma has experienced in her life, being adopted. Seeing them at the retreat was something else. It was like I picked them up at uh, I picked them up at the airport at San Jose, all three of them, and then we did the the two and a half hour drive up to where youth retreat always takes place. And I don't remember exactly how old DDA was. I don't know if you, some of you remember. He was probably around like I don't know six or seven or eight or something when he came to that retreat. And then you know the retreat site is in the middle of the forest up in Santa Rosa. And we park the car, and like he opens the door, and he just immediately runs off into the woods, like a normal like seven or eight-year-old boy would do, right? And what did Brandon do as his father just got out of the car, and he was so excited to see where his son was going, so he could probably make sure he like is safe, you know, for one, but also just there was a sense of adventure to see. I'm going to go run after my son as he's running off into the woods. Like, I got out of the car. I had no idea what to do. I was like, this is crazy. But that was, the, that was kind of the, 
just the, the bond that you could already see in front of them. Now fast forward to that night where Brandon was speaking to us for the first message of that night. And he, many of us had met him on our Mexico mission trip. And so we were really excited to meet DDA for the first time. And so uh, Brandon had actually given DDA a, a message to share with all of us about how much God loved us. And so we didn't know this, but then he said, uh, when he got up on stage, many of us hadn't met him before, so we knew him. And he said, I have someone who wants to come say hi to you. And we, knew, we all knew he was there. Um, but he said, and he has a message for you. And like to think about it, if you're an eight, seven or eight-year-old kid from Africa, and suddenly you're staring at 250 Chinese faces, like all at once, and you're standing on stage, I would think, man, there's gotta be some stage fright from this kid. Like, you know, uh, like, really? Like, we're putting him on stage to like say something to everyone? I forget exactly what he said. Some of you may remember this. I don't remember the exact specifics, but what I do remember is how confidently he shared this message with all of us, like that God loved us all, and it was something he wanted to say to us. And I think that confidence could only come from everything he had experienced in his life. That he had gone from being an orphan to being someone who is adopted and has a loving family, a dad who will run after him into the woods, and a dad who will also put him on stage in front of 250 strangers in that moment. But because of the love of the family that he's experienced, I can imagine how different his life is. But here's the thing about the power of adoption that we all have to understand. As heartwarming as all of these stories are, if you know who Jesus is, this is my story. This is your story. That's what it means to be adopted to sonship as a child of God. And if we're struggling with loneliness or wondering how God might provide for us and all of the uncertainty that we see, if we know our Heavenly Father, we can face the uncertain days knowing with the same confidence that this eight-year-old boy had on stage in front of 250 strangers. Why? Because we know how deeply our God loves us. That's what it means to be adopted to sonship. And as amazing as these stories are and how excited I am to share with you just the different, like, the, the different examples that I've seen about the power of adoption in our world, why I'm so thankful that we got to see Brandon and his whole family, his wife, Didier, and sharing about the power of the love of a heavenly father, it was made so much clearer to us seeing the relationship that they had as a family. And that is the experience that we can have as the body of Christ when we know that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so what Romans 8 is teaching us here about this adoption to sonship is that if you believe in Jesus, we have all had this experience. Now for me, sometimes I forget. That's why preparing for this message, I was like, man, looking back on these memories with these different powerful stories of adoption, man, it's good for me. I need to remember this stuff. Why? Because I forget that I'm a child of God so often. If you do not know God as your Heavenly Father, if you've never experienced the power of adoption the way I'm trying to describe it from just witnessing these really powerful relationships that I've seen, or what God's Word is saying here, talk to someone you know who knows God, who has had this experience, who can direct you to Him so that you can see, wow, I am God's beloved child. 
And because of that, I know I can face all of the uncertainty that's going on in our world. Last week, Daniel mentioned to us, we're going to see how God puts the lonely in homes in two ways. The first way is how God welcomes us into a relationship with him, the triune God. And we're going to unpack what that looks like that much more. What we're also going to unpack is how this also makes, uh, it helps us experience the power of the body of Christ together. Why? Because we are all beloved sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Um, our Wednesday night uh, adult fellowship group, Vertigo, a couple weeks ago we were supposed to go miniature golfing as like normally we meet for Bible study and we had planned a special event and then we looked at the weather report that week and it was kind of like how it is now and we were like, yeah, we're not going outside in 50 degree weather with all of these winds and it happened to be the week of our Easter celebration. So what did we do? We spent that time the way we've done in past years filling 300 Easter eggs with candy for the Sunday school kids on that morning. And you know what? This may sound crazy and you might be like, Dan, like you're not being serious. Like that night was like some of the most fun I've had in a long time. Why? It's not really about the putting the stuff in the Easter eggs, although you would find it's like a very underrated experience um, just doing that together. But I was like, man, I'm here with my brothers and sisters in Christ who have had the same experience as me. Whereas children of God, we get to spend time together. And it's like there may be all kinds of complex or lonely or challenging experiences that we have in our lives. But when you know the Heavenly Father, you know that you're not alone. And you know that you have hope to face uh, just whatever may be coming for the future. And so I want to encourage you all to think about this uh, if you have had this experience. Have we forgotten the, the joy of being adopted into the family of God. Like, that's why I'm so glad, like, the way the calendar fell. I had to preach this message this week to think back on these powerful pictures of adoption that I've been able to witness in my life. Why? Because it reminds me of a truth that I so often forget that I need to hear over and over and over again, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And the amazing experiences of Stephen Curtis Chapman's daughters and Emma Fong and DDA, as amazing as they are, that's what it means to have a relationship with the, living, with the living God. And I pray that we would all experience that in our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word and the ways where we see you caring for widows, for the outcasts, for the oppressed. Um, for your disciples and those who were close to you um, during a confusing time. Lord, I pray that this would help us see how much you love us and how much you want to be with us. And God, for all of us who I'm sure have experienced very lonely feelings as a result of the pandemic or just as a result of the brokenness of human life, God, I pray that we would know the truth, that you love us so much that you crossed something greater than just the Atlantic Ocean, the way we saw Brandon and Anna do for their son, Didier. But you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to cross from heaven to earth, to die for our sins, so that we might have a way to have a relationship with you. God, that's such an utterly amazing truth that I know I so often forget, and I'm so thankful that we could consider this morning. And Lord, as we sing this last song together, God, I pray that we would really be deeply thankful for the fact that we are your sons and daughters and that we would be able to experience that as we leave from here today. So we thank you for this time. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.